You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. One day when large groups of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and told them, Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, Yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Is there anyone here who planning to build a new house, such as Peter, Glenda, doesn't first sit down and figure the cost so you'll know if you can complete it? If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. He started something he couldn't finish, they'll say. Or can you imagine a king coming into battle against another king without first deciding whether it is possible with his 10,000 troops to face the 20,000 troops of the other? And if he decides he can't, won't he send an emissary and work out a truce? Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Salt is excellent, but if the salt goes flat, it's useless and good for nothing. Are you listening to this? Really listening? That was from Luke chapter 14, and we'll be at the end of that chapter in a little bit, but I want to give a little bit more context. Also an important piece of context in that, if you didn't read through Luke 14, is the fact that Jesus earlier in the chapter is at the dinner table with some Pharisees and talking about what it means to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, being invited into the kingdom of God, but people saying, I have to do something else right now. I can't come to the meal that you're preparing for us. We're in a series, uh, Traveling Light series. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in this through Easter. And this is a a series that starts um, with Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem in the middle of Luke, that he is going to his death. He is going to Jerusalem. He is going um, to the cross, and he is traveling there with his disciples. And so we're talking a lot during this about what does it mean for to journey with Jesus? What does it mean to be formed in the image of Christ, to do the things that Jesus did, and even greater things? What does it mean to be uh, found in a state of freedom when Jesus says, if you obey my commands, the truth will set you free? To be a disciple doesn't just mean about learning head knowledge or memorizing Bible verses, which is fine, but it actually is to imitate the action of Jesus. And yet, uh, the other week I was mulling over something and I was reading uh, a transcript that actually Rob, our, our own Rob, Rob uh, Haggard, is, is writing right now about uh, the fruits of the Spirit. And this section stood out to me here. Uh, that's on here, and it's part of a quote from another person and part of his own thought. It says, Jesus is not our role model. 
When was the last time you heard that from church? He is our life. If we try to emulate him, we will fail every time. But if we submit and surrender to his spirit, we are then able to do his works. And there's something in this that as we're talking about following Jesus, and as we've even been doing points of prayer and praxis or practice, action items to think, how can I just take one step in following in the ways of Jesus? One of the things we don't want to understate is the fact that we do this in surrender to the Spirit of God. It can often happen that we can read especially the Gospels and we can be like, yes, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do the exact things that Jesus did, and then we fall flat on our face like the disciples did. And we want to remember that um, in, in our life of faith, there is this constant surrender And it's not just trying to be like Jesus, but it's this constant surrender to what is the Spirit speaking to me? What is the Spirit speaking to you? What is the Spirit speaking to us? You know, the wristbands, what would Jesus do, are fine and dandy. But as has been pointed out many times before, uh, maybe a more holistic version of that would be, what would Jesus have Sandy do? Or what would Jesus have Caleb do? Or what would Jesus have Michael Ann do? And we want to be careful there because we don't want to get off on our own track and be like, well, I think Jesus said this to me. And I'm going to act like Jesus. I'm, not going to, I'm going to act not like Jesus in this way because I think the Spirit is talking to me in this way. And I'm going to somehow justify my actions. And that's where we come back to the fact that all of this has to be in the way of Jesus. That however Jesus is asking us to live out as his disciple is trying to find real, true, eternal life in communion with him. That each of our stories is going to be different, and yet there's going to be this character of God that is prevalent throughout, even when we fail. Even when we say, yeah, I messed up, and I need mercy again today just like I needed that first day when I was like, Jesus, you're my Lord, and you're my Savior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the gospel and the tension of the gospel being both something that we work out and something that we receive. He says that he uses the term costly grace as compared to cheap grace. And he says costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for the door at which a person must knock. And such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life, and it is grace because it gives a person the only true life they need. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it transforms us as sinners. So as we get into Luke 14 today, I just want you to keep that in mind as we think about doing the things that Jesus did or what is Jesus calling us to do, that there's always that point of surrender and there is God with us, but there is also the spirit in us that is leading us. And how do we live out of that place? So up on the screen here, you'll find uh, a point of prayer and a point of praxis that um, I'll tie to the message or to the text at the end today. The first one is simply restore the joy of salvation. Restore the joy of salvation. We as Christians are not meant to be wet blankets. We're not meant to be um, those that are uh, constantly in a, in a state of uh, putting ourselves down or putting others down. And a lot of times when our joy is stolen in our Christian walk, 
Um, it could be because of sin. It could be because of the weight of life. And we can't necessarily all of a sudden snap our fingers and like, oh, I'm joyful now. Here I am. And so we actually need to seek this in our communion with God. And we remember that in Psalm 51, where this idea of restore the joy of salvation came, there was sin that needed to be dealt with. And as we enter into a season of Lent, which we started last Wednesday at Ash Wednesday, is that we do want to be thinking about this. Like, are there things in our lives that are actually preventing joy, not preventing joy in a way that um, they should be uh, helping us with self-control, but in a way that we're just not feeling the joy of the Lord? Is there sin that I'm not dealing with? Is there unhealth in my life that is just burdening me that I have to take to the Lord and to my community and to my mental health professional? What are the things in our lives that are burdening us? Take that with the Holy Spirit and ask God this coming week to restore the joy of salvation. Again, this isn't some kind of pill that you take and all of a sudden your joy is restored. Second thing, purposefully spend time in an unsavory place. This is going to be very subjective to all of us where some place that I might go and I might really enjoy and another place, you know, Terry might be, I'm not going there, Justin. But, what is an unsavory place that you feel like, you know, it, it, it would be awkward, it would be weird? Am, am I, and I'm not asking anybody to sin, obviously, obviously. But is there something like, I don't know if I could go into that place because of the people that are in there. Or the types of people that are in there. Like, I just, that's not my scene, that's not my tribe, that's not my whatever. But the question that we'll get to then is, or the, the praxis is purposefully spend time in an unsavory place. And we'll hit those again in a minute. Um, Ron, I think I lost my clicker. Jared. There we go. So um, as I was looking over this text, we'll be in Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. So just two verses. And uh, the, the phrase blood, sweat, and tears came to my mind. Does anybody know where that phrase kind of originated? I didn't. It was, it was Winston, uh, Churchill. Churchill. In the, in, the 19, in the 1940s, Europe was going to war. World War II uh, was about six months in, and they hired a new prime minister, or elected him. I'm not familiar with uh, the UK's political system, or our political system, really. Um, but during that time, uh, Churchill gave a speech, and it wasn't this uh, great speech where, like, rallying the troops. It was an honest speech that kind of in some, in some way reflects the tone of what we just heard from Jesus telling his followers, like, are you counting the cost of what it's going to be to follow me to Jerusalem? And so in, in this, the first speech as a prime minister, Churchill said that I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Later he said to um, uh, an advisor, he said, these poor people... They trust me, and I can give them nothing but disaster for quite a long time. And Churchill was just being, you know, honest about the cost of war and the cost of peace. Jesus, in the passage that we just read, that I just read to you, is just being honest. Like, this is a real thing. We can think about how we would react as far as that call to discipleship now, but just put yourself in the disciples' shoes then. Jesus is saying, I am going to be crowned king in Jerusalem. And that does not mean political victory. That means I will be crucified 
Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you counting the cost of what's going to happen? So Luke oddly connects this, connects this journey, this cost of discipleship, with the idea of salt, which is weird. Uh, it's interesting how God you know, works through the different gospel writers and puts the text together in different way to highlight different things. But what he's basically saying to us in part is that we as Christians, we as disciples, can't lose our essence. And that the world needs the kingdom of God through blood, sweat, and tears. And this came to mind as I was thinking about the passage because blood, sweat, and tears all have something similar to them. And that's that we can usually think of them as salty items. You know, our bodies, um, which was a surprise to me, um, contain about the same concentration of ratio of salt as seawater. Isn't that weird? That our bodies have the same saltiness as seawater. Our blood is about 80% salt. And when we sweat or we cry, we're releasing these electrolytes from our body. And, and one of those electrolytes is salt to help um, keep everything running smoothly. And obviously, salt can cause heart issues. But we're not talking about the bad stuff of salt. We're talking about the good stuff of salt today. And so in a few minutes, I want to uh, spend time linking the text of salt with blood, sweat, and tears, and how we as a kingdom of God people are called to be the salt of the earth. Elsewhere, Jesus says, not only you are the light of the world, disciples, but you are also the salt of the earth. And there's about, I don't know, 20 different ways we can use that metaphor. I'm going to give you three for today as we consider how we can follow Jesus on this road to Jerusalem with blood, sweat, and tears. But first, we're going to pause. Um, as I was thinking about um, blood, sweat, and tears in World War II, obviously we have some war stuff going on in Eastern Europe right now. And so um, if uh, you can get that ready, don't start to play it yet. If I could ask Laura to come up to introduce uh, the video about Ukraine, and then we're going to spend a couple minutes praying for Ukraine and for Russia, for the church in Ukraine, for the church in Russia, um, and the, the disaster stuff that is happening there. So um, if you're like me, Ukraine has been on your heart for the last two weeks or more. I've been up at night. There's been all kinds of moments where I'm just like, God, we just need you. And um, I'd just like to share this video to start with. This is Julia. I think she's 28 years old. She leads our discipleship training ministries in, um, in Kiev. And um, it's a short video from her right now. And then we're going to go into prayer for Ukraine. Our day starts around 6 a.m. and uh, finishes uh, around 12 midnight. Uh, we are uh, working and trying to cover as much as possible during the day because during the night it's uh, bombing and uh, very dangerous. So we are out uh, when it's daylight and we are on the base preparing everything for the next day uh, when it's dark. So we are doing a lot of things and it's not enough of us to cover uh, even those, but we are doing what we can. We focusing on feeding people because we have a very well equipped kitchen that we just finished recently, which oh. right now serving 600 portions of food per day. Wow. And feeding uh, 
different people, like elderly home, we're feeding people in the metro underground that are hiding, we're feeding uh, volunteers and we're feeding people who defend us as well. There is no cars, nothing. Uh, all the shops closed and uh, at some parts you can see destroyed buildings that were bombed. Um, like uh, civilian buildings. I saw yesterday we were driving in the city and I saw uh, burned cars on the road and uh, like after, after fights. And uh, some of our drivers that are rescuing people, they, they see even more. They see shooting right beside them and they see uh, like bombs being shot like uh, very near from where they're driving before before war started i had i was anxious and i thought i will run but uh, when the day came we me and some other volunteers here we gathered together and we prayed and uh, we all got this deep sense of peace and even more than peace, like uh, readiness to go and to do something. So we decided to stay to help here. You have this kind of thought that, well, if, if it's the end, I'm fine because I know that it's not the end for us. Like we do have life, eternal life, so it's fine. And if we die like this, it's the best death could be like we're helping our nation we're helping our people so even on the base we don't have bomb shelter so if they bomb base we're gonna be all dead so that's why we don't we don't receive refugees on the base no. because we can provide a safe place so the only people who stayed here is the one who ready to die if something happened we are hoping that ukraine win uh, because uh, because it's more than just ukraine it's more than our nation i believe that it's uh, it's a crucial time to stand for those values that we carry not to be not to compromise not to be fearful to say out loud what you think and what you believe in and uh, like family values and uh, uh, culture, your culture and your inheritance. This is not the time to bow down <laughs> before uh, like other people. I believe that we're going to stay strong. We Every day we read, we read messages how people from villages taking tanks of uh, Russian tanks and they are fighting with what they can. They kneeling before the tanks to stop them. And uh, they they really, like Ukrainians, none of us want, want to, to be part of Russia. And uh, we want, we love our country. We want to fight for it. We do understand that God is the one who's on our side and who gives us strength and who protects us. Because even soldiers who we talk to, uh, they saying that sometimes they feel like bullets just flying uh, out away from them, like uh, supernatural. They don't understand how it's happening. So I believe that this is all those prayers of millions and millions of people that praying and interceding for us. So this is why I'm like... As, as like never before, I know that prayers are important and they have power and they do change uh, our reality.
Amen. So guys, this is what the kingdom of God looks like in a dark and evil time that they're facing. And um, I just believe this is a YWAMer, but I just believe this is also the body of Christ. You know, it represents many, many people in both Russia and Ukraine who are bringing the kingdom of God in a dark, dark time. So as we go to prayer, I'm just going to take one more minute. This is, um, if, if you want to, you can go on YWAM Slavic Ministries and get updates regularly. Um, they have, they'll put you on their mailing list. But um, this is from Anya, who is the leader of the Kiev Center. She said, I woke up this morning with a picture of Aaron and Moses. It's been 10 days, hard, heavy, devastating 10 days for the people on the ground in this horrible situation. Please pray, lift up heads, the voices to support their spirits, their emotions to support their pain and success. Specific needs, safety for our drivers. It's getting more and more dangerous. We need more drivers coming to Kyiv and to other cities that are not close to the western part. Pray for the Green Corridor to be open. Today there was an agreement between Ukraine and Russia to make a safe zone for Mariupol people, but the firing did not cease and the corridor has not opened. People want to get out of hot zones. We are getting messages from many people stranded, asking for help to get out. It's quite hard. In the village, there's no medications. We don't have, we have food, but no medications. Pray that we can get the supplies that are needed for safety for the drivers so that we can get to these villages where they are needed. Many people are arriving in the West. Some are moving. Many want to stay in the West. Tons of miracles happening every day. Your prayers do matter. The prayers are the changing point in this situation. Don't cease to pray. Keep crying out. Keep standing firm in faith that God's plans, God's good plan for Ukraine will prevail. We also have word from our people in Russia who are heartbroken about the situation in Ukraine. Um, if you live in Russia, your total net worth is about 50% of what it was two weeks ago. So um, they're facing hard times and they just, the, the Y-Wormers just say, we just don't want the world to hate us, you know? So they're caught in a no-win situation. So, yeah, as, as people of the kingdom, I just want to bring some of these issues just um, before the Lord. So God, it's so hard to know what to pray. It's so hard to have words to even try to... Um, even try to talk to you about this, but we want to come to you this morning. And I just want to lift up people in Ukraine, God. I just want to lift up especially believers in Ukraine and in Russia, God, that are representing your kingdom in these places, in these times, God. I lift them up before you and I pray, God, for your safety. I pray for your hand of protection. We ask you, God, that drivers would be able to make it safely to the borders where they drop people off and they come back the next day for the next group, God. And I pray, God, 
just for your hand in this situation. I pray for a change of heart for Vladimir Putin. I ask in Jesus' name that this situation would shift. God, that there would be a major shift in this war. Father, I pray for Eastern Europe who are um, receiving so many refugees right now that they never thought they would be receiving. For Europe who's receiving refugees, God, I lift up our team in Romania, Josh and Bethany, who we partner with, um, Kevin and Joey and Melissa, God, who are going to the border every day and helping out and bringing supplies, God. We lift them all up before you, and we ask you, God, for your mercy. We ask that you would extend your hand of mercy on behalf of Ukraine. And God, we pray for those serving under horrible situations, and we pray for your grace. We pray for your protection. We pray that the love of Jesus would penetrate the darkness, God. I ask for that in Jesus' name. We just commit our brothers and sisters into your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Salt is good, but if the salt loses its taste, how will its savor be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So one being salt of the earth, especially in connection with this idea of blood or sacrifice or meals, the taste of where salt goes, has something to do with eating at tables of sacrifice. Now, let me be clear on this. The scriptures warn us that we need to be careful about who, or they may, let me say, how we fellowship with, with certain people. Meaning, what does darkness and light have in common? However, that being said, there is also this thing where oftentimes we want to segregate ourselves from other types of people, not out of any kind of uh, uh, moral or ethical or um, mature way, but out of an immature sense, where Jesus himself didn't just hang out with his crew. Jesus himself hung out not only with Pharisees, which some of us might be like those people, those Pharisees, he also hung out with sinners. And he also hung out with gluttons and with tax collectors. And in the ancient Near East, when Jesus was around and before him in the Hebraic culture, there's this thing called a covenant of salt that is mentioned a handful of times in the scripture, specifically in the Old Testament. It has to do with the Levites and a covenant of salt that God had with them that was everlasting. It has to do with uh, this covenant that God gave kingship to, to David through a covenant of salt. And I was looking this up in, you know, the background commentary. And what was going on here is that today we don't necessarily see a meal as something that's sacred. We don't have the same amount for most meals that we eat as something that is a big deal. But in the ancient Near Eastern time, in Jesus' day and before that, and even in some um, Arab tribes today, we have to keep in mind that meals taken in the company with others were temporary associations with them that they were covenants. And what happened with that covenant of fellowship was that there was this sacrificial meal that happened, often meat seasoned with salt, that was pointing towards even preserving and enduring this friendship with one another. And so as you think about being salt of the earth, 
about eating out of tables of sacrifice, how this plays in is, goes back to middle school almost. It goes back to the cafeteria. It goes by to who am I going to sit with? Who are the cool kids? Or who are the kids that are too cool for me that I'm not going to be able to sit with them because my friends are going to think that I'm a dweeb because I'm sitting with the cool kids? Will the cool kids even let me sit with them? And so to be salt on the earth, in part, means to eat at a table of sacrifice, meaning who are you afraid? Who would you be ashamed of if Terry and John, no offense, Terry and John, I know you can take this, if you were at Wendy's with a certain type of person or a certain kind of people and Terry and John were, walked in and they're like, oh, you're, you're here for the, 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 the salad bar? Wendy's doesn't have a salad bar anymore. But you're here for the baked potato too? And you would actually feel embarrassed that John and Terry saw you with that person. Who would be those people in your life that you would not want to eat a meal with because of how others might perceive you? How others might on a social status um, kind of hierarchy be like, oh, you're eating with them? What does that say about you, Katie? What does that say about you, Shannon, that you're eating with that person? And are you as a disciple as salt on the earth, making those sacrifices to actually go into that uncomfortable place and have table fellowship with those that are not like you, that might be in whatever social circle you're in, might be of the aristocrat upper crust that your friends might look down on you, or might be those people that are on the lower uh, part of the totem pole that people might look at you like, Why, what, what's going on with you eating with them? The kingdom of God takes that idea of table fellowship and it blows it out of the water. Just as Jesus sat with not only sinners, but also with Pharisees. That people were looking in and be like, how can you sit with them? And as his disciples, it's the same thing. Who are you challenged to sit with, to actually sit with and share a meal with, to get to know both the good, the bad, and the ugly of their lives? That is part of being a disciple and being salt of the earth. Connected to sweat, the idea of sweat and being the salt of the earth, the idea of soil in the scripture, is that salt was used for so many different things. One of the things in the ancient Near Eastern time is that there was a certain salt mix that when applied properly would kill surface weeds while allowing other deep-rooted plants and grass to thrive. I don't know if that's still the same now with agriculture or how they, they do that, but in Jesus' time, some of the ways salt was used was to weed out the surface areas. Now, when I do weeding in our garden, Naomi always kind of has a little bit of a, like a look of fear in her eye because I can't always determine what is a weed and what is like a bulb. And there's been, you know, some glances to husbands I just saw. And, and so there's been times before where I've thought I've done a good job at weeding out what didn't need to be there. And Naomi's like, you pulled up my, do you remember what flower it was? There's been so many. You pulled out my, something that was made to flourish and was made to uh, actually grow there. And as salt of the earth being applied properly into the world, sometimes it can be a lot easier to just like drop a truth bomb on somebody and to scorch the earth and walk away. And it basically turns it into a salted wasteland. But we as disciples being salt of the earth are actually made to go into the sweaty work of weeding. 
where we're not just, like sometimes, yes, obviously. There's some things where the one year I got out the, the rototiller, is that what it is? The thing that just, and I just went to town on everything we had, which wasn't great to Naomi, <laughs> but it did the job, whatever that job was supposed to be. And a lot of times we just want to go into relationships or situations at work or in the clubs that we help to lead. And there's some kind of thing that needs to be weeded out there. And either we are like, I'm not going to touch that weed. That would take too much work to handle that appropriately. Or I'm just going to torch this thing. But I think we are to be more moderate and self-controlled in the way we as salt of the earth, as disciples of Jesus, are to weed out evil in the land. And that makes you sweat. There is toil that is involved in getting metaphorically on your hands and knees and getting into the dirt of institutional life, of uh, you know, organizational life, of personal life, and saying, I want what is good here that God has planted to flourish. But these other things, these other weeds, I want to help get rid of. And I don't want what is good there in God's beloved world to get accidentally pulled up in the process. We talked when I came back from sabbatical, one of the verses that really stood out to me, especially in the idea of, um, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is when Paul is encouraging the church and says, we remember before God our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And being salt of the earth means that when we go to town, when we work, when we labor, when we sweat, when we endure, that our motivational places in our heart and in our mind are not of fear, but are of faith. They're not of hatred, but they're of love. And they're not of despair, but they're of hope. And those things help us to sweat for the kingdom of God, help us to take care and to weed out the evil that is in the world that God so loves. So first thing is that we want to eat at tables of sacrifice. Second thing, we want to weed in God's beloved world, which means we don't want to like destroy everything. We actually want to take up what's bad. And then finally, tears preserving the possibilities of pain. And this is connected. Last week, uh, Ron got to talk about manure. We got to, I got to talk about manure a little bit this time, which is always fun thinking about how uh, there's one article called, You, Christian, are the manure of the earth. That that's another way of putting it. And connecting this with the idea of tears. I think of John 11 and how um, Lazarus died. And how it was days until Jesus got there and on the road, you know, um, the sister was like, you know, Jesus, if you would have been here, this would not have happened. And there was pain and there was death and there was hope. But Jesus got there. And again, this is something that we can always reflect on. We should reflect on normally that even though Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus wept over the situation. Jesus wept over the situation knowing that there was going to be new life breathed into Lazarus' life. Why did Jesus weep? Was it just the feeling of empathy and compassion? Was it the fact of death and uh, pain are still real and he wants it to be over with? But Jesus wept. And we as salt of the earth Christians, one of the things we're called to is that when crap happens, when manure is piling up, what, what salt did in the ancient Near East, while it says here, you know, if it loses what it's meant to do, it's not good for the manure pile. It's saying that um, back in the ancient Near East, they would actually put salt on piles of crap of manure to preserve it so that it wouldn't rot and become ineffective in fertilizing 
the soil that it was meant to fertilize. I didn't really know that manure could corrupt. Or manure, like when you think of manure, you think of like, it's, it's bad already, right? You don't think of it like, the use is that it's useless, but there's actually at least, I don't, again, I don't know the agrarian culture of today, I'm talking about then, is that they would put salt, a certain salt mixture, on the manure in order to preserve the manure, to preserve the pile of crap, so that when it was spread out, it could actually be used to fertilize and help flourish the land that it was meant for. And I think this is what we're supposed to do when crap piles up in our lives or in the people's lives that we're with. That when grief and pain and sorrow come, there's something to us as intercessors, there's something to us as disciples, even if it's not physical, but crying and being sorrowful over the pain and the loss that is there. Because pain and loss can be a great agent of transformation, but that doesn't mean it has to be a great agent of transformation towards good. A lot of us in this room have experienced deep places of pain and loss, and we're bitter for it, right? But there's also this thing that God does and that the kingdom of God does and that the disciples that we as salt of the earth can do that as we sit with people and grieve with them, just as Jesus wept over the situation, that somehow our tears, spiritually speaking, are trying to preserve the pain and the crap for God to actually redeem and use for something good and beautiful and flourishing. Even though it's like, ah, this is manure. There's never been a time, I was like asking Naomi, how much can I swear during this sermon? She's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't swear. So I'm not. But like just the way life hits us and the crap that we have to deal with and the pain that people's lives have to deal with, that there is something to us as followers of Jesus to preserve the hope in there of what God can do in the midst of that to transform our lives. So that maybe looking back, we're like, you know, I wouldn't have wished that on my worst enemy. But God really showed up there too. And then God really redeemed something there. And if it wasn't for that situation, I wouldn't be the person I am today in the Lord. And how can we, as salt of the earth, through our tears, help to preserve the possibility in the midst of pain and junk and manure and crap in our lives and in other people's lives? So those are the three things as far as being salt of the earth I wanted to, to point out. Um, back to our prayer and practice. Team, you guys can make your way up for closing worship. So in light of all that, there was also that word there. How, if you lose your saltiness, how can you be restored? And there is a, a distinct warning there, right? How can it be restored? And yet this is the grace that's in this. As Jesus is saying this to his disciples, if you lose your saltiness, if you lose your essence, if you don't count the cost of following me and you abandon me, how are you going to be restored? Did any one of the disciples stay with Jesus to the end? No. Every single one of them abandoned Jesus, betrayed Jesus, left Jesus, and Jesus knew this was going to happen. And what did Jesus do after the resurrection? Did he say, to heck with you guys. I'm going to get a whole new crew of people. You lost your saltiness. You didn't count the cost. You didn't stay with me to the end. He knew that was going to happen. And so there is kind of this uh, serious warning in it. But there is also just this, also as we look at the promise of the death and resurrection, Jesus will restore you. 
Jesus will call you to restoration. And maybe there's places in your life or in my life where like you feel like you just you really missed the mark. You really did something that you shouldn't have done or you just abandoned God. Maybe there was no like moral failure. But you're just like, I just kind of gave up on God. And I don't know if I can be restored from that. We see in the story of disciples that restoration is possible and that you should hold on to the hope of that and that even today, Jesus is calling you to a restored faith. What is that place in your Christian life that maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago that you were so super excited about that was from the Lord and you felt that joy has just kind of left you? Or you felt like life and the crap and the junk and the manure of life kind of is covering you and you don't know what to do. This next couple weeks, pray for restoration. Pray for the joy of your salvation to be restored. Because God is there, the resurrected Jesus is there saying, yeah, you might have abandoned me. You might have betrayed me. You might have given up on me. And I'm still right here being like, do you love me today? I love you today. Jesus says, I love you today, Chase and Sylvia. Will you repent today and turn towards me? Will you be restored in my truth and in my kindness? So pray into that this next coming weeks. And then I'm going to ask you, think about where can you purposefully spend time in an unsavory place? Where can you spend time... Um, and again, this is always weird in community because if it was like one-on-one, we could talk about other people here. They're like, maybe you should get together with them. And now it's like if you get a phone call from Justin this week, you're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that's the reality of community people. But let's look outside of our circle too. Like somebody that you just feel like you don't really, like it's not, it wouldn't be a, you feel like it wouldn't be like a great thing to have them over. What does it mean for you to go into a place, have a meal with somebody you normally wouldn't have a meal with? And maybe even have your mind transformed a little bit. It's not to say that maybe there are legit reasons you don't want to hang out with this person or get together. Maybe you just don't click. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about. Like, it's one thing to be like, oh, we can get together and have a meal and celebrate the Lord. That's good. But actually, the gospel is about getting together and loving on your enemies and being loved by your enemies, too, in some weird way, where you're putting yourself in a place of vulnerability where you're putting yourself in the Pharisee's home, that you don't really want to be there, but you're going to hang out with them, where you're putting yourself in the place of sinners and of gluttons and of tax collectors, and you're like, what are people going to think about me that I'm, that I'm here with these people? Are they going to think that I believe all the exact same things that they believe or that I act the exact same way that they act or all this other stuff? And I think in the praxis of this, it's going to churn up in the soil of your heart some things to deal with in prayer and in community. So I would encourage you, uh, to think about these two things as you go into the next couple weeks, along with the other items that Pastor Peter and Ron uh, have, have given us as far as prayer and practice. So let's pray, and then we'll close with some worship. Father, we are so thankful for your heart and for Jesus, for you sending Jesus. Jesus, you did what we absolutely could not do in your faithfulness. And we want to tie ourselves to that. We want to surrender to that. We want to be like all the things that you ask us to do, to some degree, we cannot do. And you still ask us. But you have done it, Lord. Where we would abandon a situation, you have kept true. 
where we would betray because we would cause some kind of either something that was uncomfortable or maybe even some kind of social death. You stayed true to who you were. You loved those that crucified you. You say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so God, may we receive your spirit, Jesus, to be able to take one step towards the things that you did while you were on earth and the things that you call us to do. As we think about the blood and the sweat and the tears that go into following you and the seriousness of that, we also just pray for an appropriate um, lightness that these things would not be burdensome in the ways that they're not supposed to be burdensome, that there would be legit joy and legit happiness and a legit uh, delight in our lives, even as we might have to suffer through things with other people, even as we suffer through trying to become more human and made into your image. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation, God. I pray that for everyone here, for those that have not yet tasted, have not yet received you for who you are, God, I pray that uh, your light and your life would draw them to you. And we ask that you would just guide us by your spirit and the nuances of life and the manure piles of life and the soil we need to weed and the places we need to sacrifice in order to have fellowship with others in the way you call us to. So we praise you and we worship you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen.